Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and find verse 18. Luke, chapter 9, verse 18. We're going to read from verse 18 down through verse 27. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Lord, as a congregation... We come before you, Lord, in prayer, and we ask that you would be with us, make your presence known to us, real to us, open up your word to us, Lord, that our hearts may be thrilled and excited about the things that you would show us. Not just in uh, an intellectual way, Lord, although there's nothing wrong with that, but in a very personal way. Lord, we know that you love us and that your scripture, Lord, can read to us like a love letter filled with emotion and and the strength lord of your feeling towards us and we want to we want to catch that today understand that know that we've been in the presence of the living god and so do all these things and more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think lord and we pray in jesus name and those who agreed said amen i did a search on ebay looking for an electric chair The kind used in prisons for executions. (laughs) To my surprise, I found one. Although it was a replica and not in working condition. I thought we'd put it in the entry this morning as a visual aid to the message. Before you think I'm crazy, consider the shock value... What? Consider the shock value of what Jesus said to his disciples to describe the extent of the total commitment he expected of his followers. Jesus used an image the disciples were familiar with, but definitely not ready for. He used the cross. The cross was the Roman means of execution. If you want to know what a disciple is like, look at a man carrying his cross to the place of his execution. 
Stunned is the only word I can think of to describe the response to this revelation. Who would want to live like that with every day being a crosswalk to your execution? Well, for starters, Jesus lived like that. All those who own him as Lord will live like that. We'd better take a look at what it means for us because we too own him as Lord. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus took up his cross before he came. And number two, take up your cross until Jesus comes. First of all, in verses 18 through 22, Jesus took up his cross before he came. There's something I want you to bear in mind as we get into these first few verses. Jesus knew ahead of time that he would be crucified on the cross at Calvary. He knew ahead of time and said that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. When I say he knew ahead of time, I really mean ahead of time. Before the universe was spoken into existence, before the earth was ever formed, before God created man, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, the Son of God knew that he would go to the cross. In that very real sense, Jesus took up his cross even before he came. In eternity past, in the councils of the Trinity, the plan of saving a sinful race was determined. Before the foundations of the earth, Jesus took up his cross. And thus, when Jesus told his disciples, and when he tells you as his disciple to take up your cross daily, he's describing something he had done for ages before he came and that he was exampling on earth in his coming. Now, Jesus used this phrase, take up your cross. When you were condemned to death by crucifixion, you literally took up your cross. You carried the cross member upon your shoulders and you walked through town to the place of your execution. Taking up your cross is not about dying on the cross. It's about living under the cross. It's about living each day submitted to the understanding that your life has been forfeited to a higher authority. And so in verse 18 we read, And it happened as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Let's highlight prayer for just a moment. One of the deacons recently sent me this quotation. Prayer is both the thermometer and the thermostat of the local church. For the spiritual temperature either goes up or down depending on how God's people pray. I like that because it's true. And we could ask ourselves, are we cold? Are we hot? Well, let me encourage you rather than answer those questions just on an individual basis. Let me encourage you to join our email prayer force. You know, a lot of people tell me all the time, oh, I just, I'm not computer literate. Uh, I just can't get into having a computer. I understand that. That's fine. But you have to understand you're going to be w left way behind in, in the real world. Uh, so, but I understand that. That person's literate. They have all kinds of technology going on this morning. I, I hear you. I know you're out there. We have a device now that explodes cell phones. So just thought I'd let you know. The next time that goes off, you're going to feel something warm. We have liability insurance for it, too. So anyway, let me encourage you that are online 
to, uh, to join the email prayer force. Just, uh, you know, send an email to prayerforce at cvconline.com and get involved with that. Come a few minutes early before either Sunday morning service and pray with us. You know, uh, it, those of you who are reading your bulletin, uh, you know that uh, at 7.45 and at 9.45 in the prayer room, which is in the upstairs of the youth building, uh, we're meeting for 15 minutes of prayer uh, before the service. Do you, do you think your life might be revolutionized if you spent time in prayer before the service asking the Lord to, to just bless? I, I think it would. And come the first Sunday evening of the month and pray with us. We have a, an open time at the end when... Uh, we have prayer one for another, and, and it's a great time. Now, rather than you know get into this big exhortation, uh, here's the thing. Scholars are split. Does our much praying bring revival, or does God desire to bring revival and then stir up our hearts to pray? I don't know that that can be finally answered, but I do know that when there is a real fervor and excitement in prayer, which is really just talking to God and depending upon God and looking for God's leading, amazing things happen in our personal lives and in our corporate life. And so whether uh, you want to see this as an exhortation or an encouragement, we need to pray and we need to pray more together. And uh, Jesus, of course, what an example of going to the Lord, going to his father constantly in prayer. Now, I like the words, his disciples joined him. The Bible tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and is constantly praying for us. And so in a very real way, whenever you pray, you are joining Jesus who is already praying for you. Now, that's, that's kind of neat, isn't it? Talk about devotional things that excite you. So when I say let's pray or when we go to prayer, Jesus is already praying. And we are, in a, in a very real way, joining with him in prayer. And who would you rather pray with than Jesus Christ? Now, as they prayed, Jesus asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 19, So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. Now we could speculate as to some of the reasons why these particular three answers were being given. More to our point, the people saw Jesus as a mere man. Like John, like Elijah, like one of the Old Testament prophets. And they speculated how a mere man might be able to do and say such things. What mere man, though, ever claimed to live a completely sinless life? What mere man ever claimed to be the only and exclusive way to God? What mere man ever claimed to be able to forgive sins? What mere man ever claimed to be able to give you eternal life? What mere man ever claimed he would return to earth and judge the world? In his famous book, Mere Christianity... C.S. Lewis makes this statement, and I quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. 
Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Unbelievers do the same thing that these first century Jews were doing in every era. We might not think of Jesus as John or Elijah, but there are plenty of people who are willing to say that Jesus was a prophet. People in various religions, even today around the world, if you ask them about Jesus, they say, well, yeah, he was one of the prophets. For the most part, historians and humanists say Jesus was a great teacher or a sound moralist who was willing to die for his convictions, but still only a mere man. At least be honest. If you don't believe that Jesus was Lord, then call him a lunatic. Call him a liar. But you can't say that a great moral teacher or a great teacher made the claims that he made. He was more than that or he was less than that. And so in verse 20, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? We go through life trusting others to watch out for us. We have agencies that oversee and approve our foods, our medications, that sort of thing. They're not always perfect, but to a certain extent, they're necessary. I don't want to really be trying out my medicine for myself. I know they sometimes get it wrong. Those of you who've been using Vioxx, see me afterwards. But uh, anyway, but you know, we have these agencies and we generally trust them to look out for us. But when it comes to eternal life, to matters of the eternal... You really need to look into it yourself. It needs to be a personal and individual decision. You shouldn't be trusting others to tell you what's going on in the eternal realm. You should go to God and go to his word and make your own choice. And so when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He was asking everyone throughout all of human history to give their answer. It is Perhaps the most significant question anyone would ever be asked and answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? He's asking you this morning. Jesus was and is either Lord or he is not. There is really no middle ground. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Well, Christ is the Greek rendering of a Hebrew word for Messiah. And it means simply the anointed one. Peter answered that Jesus was the Messiah the anointed servant of God, the one whose coming was promised in the Old Testament. You have to have a a working knowledge of the Old Testament to understand this terminology. It was the one that was promised who would come and establish God's kingdom on earth. Okay, break out the crowns. The Messiah was going to establish God's kingdom on earth. They had been preaching this kingdom. Here now was the king, the Christ, the anointed one. The crowns, though, would have to wait. Verse 21, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Why tell no one? Well, the Jews were expecting a conquering king to come and free them from Rome. They were not expecting a crucified king to first free them from their sin. The message would make no sense even to the disciples until after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, it's easy to criticize these guys. I mean, we read this and we think, man, what could be clearer? 
You're going to be rejected, killed, and you're going to have to raise from the dead. We, of course, have the advantage of history. This is what happened. We have the advantage of having the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost to indwell us and to help us, teach us, and lead us into truth. These guys, these first century Jews, they had those disadvantages plus a very significant disadvantage, and that is of their expectations. There is a huge prejudice of expectation in all of our lives. We expect certain things, and it, it becomes a habit or a prejudice, and when things don't fit into that, we don't really understand what's going on, and we try to force and make things fit into what we think is going to happen. So the Jews... They had this great expectation that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome and conquer. He was going to be like King David and King Solomon at the same time. David, the great warrior king who would overthrow God's enemies left and right. Solomon, the great uh, builder and the one who would bring glory to the empire. And so when the king comes and he says, okay, that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen until after I'm rejected, killed, and raised from the dead, you don't know at all what's going on. And so we cut these guys some slack because of their expectations. And, and it's a warning to us, you know, living as we do. We, we all have our own understandings and expectations of things. And so we want to always read the scripture and step back and say, what was going on? What did they think? What do I think? How am I prejudiced about this text? What am I missing here? And it will open up your eyes to some new and exciting things. Now, Jesus spoke plainly about his mission. He would suffer many things. Then he would be officially rejected by Jewish leaders. Not every Jew rejected Jesus, of course, but the leadership of the nation and thus nationally they rejected him. Then he would be killed, but three days later he would be resurrected and live forevermore. The Messiah is first referred to as the Son of Man by the prophet Daniel. Jesus is called by that title over 80 times in the Gospels. It was the most common name that he used for himself. It's a term of humiliation. It's a term describing God taking on human flesh. Jesus literally took up his cross and walked to his crucifixion. But long ages before he carried his cross to Calvary, he had already taken up his cross. In humble submission, the second person of the Godhead determined to take upon himself a body of flesh, to come and walk among his creatures to die in their place, that they might have eternal life. From some moment in eternity past, until his death on the cross, Jesus was already on a cross walk. Do you understand what I'm saying? At least from the Garden of Eden forward, when God came to the Garden and he confronted a sinning Adam and Eve, and he said, what did you do? And they hemmed and hawed and blamed one another then finally the Lord said I have a plan and it's been in place before this time a savior is going to come and then the Bible is the unfolding drama of that redemption of that savior and so at least from the garden Jesus already was taking up his cross knowing what his mission would be and of course we know that it goes back before the garden in the councils of eternity in, in a way that I can't even begin to comprehend as a person stuck in linear time and space. 
It's your example. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he has not already done. And he's done it to a much greater extent. Consider God taking on human flesh. And for age upon age of human history and ages before that perhaps in our thinking, having humbled himself to take on that mission and then to fulfill it in time. It's an amazing thought, really. And that brings us to Jesus' example for us and his exhortation to us. Verses 23 through 27, take up your cross until Jesus comes. While the disciples were still stunned, Jesus told them something even more startling. And really, I think you have to understand, again, this is a time to put yourself in the text and think, what would these guys have thought? Like other Jews, they thought that Jesus was going to be the king and take over. And then Jesus says, hey, great confession of faith, Peter, right on. In another gospel, he says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. My father in heaven, man, that is so spiritual. Peter, you're on. You're going for it, bro. Now let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to die and rise from the dead, and you're going to take up a cross and follow me. What are you talking about, Lord? And I I don't know, maybe either they knew this image or or maybe someone was on their way to be executed. Jesus, you know, he had frequently used these parables. He said, you know, look at this guy sowing in the field over here. Jesus might have said, look at that individual on his way to his crucifixion, carrying the cross, taking up his cross. That's what it's going to mean to follow me. And I don't know that this could register really with these guys. And so he says to them in verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus was like watching a man carrying his cross to the place of execution. Now, the most basic, fundamental understanding of that image would be this. A man carrying his cross was submitted to the complete authority of Rome. Just so, a disciple is to be submitted to the complete authority of the Lord. That man, taking on his cross, walking to the place of execution... His life no longer belonged to him. It belonged to Rome, and Rome was going to take it from him. In in a very similar way, a Christian takes on the cross, takes on his or her cross. Your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to Jesus Christ to do with as he sees fit. Now, let me interject two thoughts before we get depressed about this. I'm serious. Remember that Jesus is our example, and he voluntarily took up his cross. He submitted to it in eternity past. And so whatever it is, it can't be a morbid, bitter, burdensome thing. And then in describing his voluntary submission to his cross, the Bible says that he did it, and I quote, for the joy that was set before him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Part of that joy was to make eternal life available to you and I. And so taking up your cross may sound awful, but the Bible describes Jesus doing it voluntarily and for joy. Now let's look at its parts. If anyone desires to come after me, Jesus spoke of your desire. And it's, it's a word that simply implies a personal decision. It's up to you. Do you, do you desire to follow after Jesus? If you do, deny yourself. The word deny 
We talk about denying ourselves certain things as an act of our will. Some of you are undoubtedly on the latest fad diet, whatever it is. But all of us have dieted from one time or another, and, and maybe you, I'm going to deny myself chocolate. And you're worried now a little bit about the holidays coming up. You're on a diet that doesn't allow you to eat certain holiday foods. How much is your willpower going to kick in? Now you're going to go off your diet, you know it. But we talk about denying ourselves some small, ha- you, know, you know, edible or some habit. But you are, in this case, you're denying indwelling selfishness. Not just something you do, but something you are. You're really admitting that you are selfish at your very core. And, and you're, you're admitting you are selfish and denying self. And saying, I don't want to do what I want to do anymore. I want to do what God wants me to do. And then he says, take up your cross daily. This must occur daily. It's not a once in a lifetime decision. It is a moment by moment determination to follow God and not self. And so every day, maybe dozens or hundreds of times, maybe more than that a day, you're faced with a decision. You can act or react a certain way. And because we have selfishness at our core, we tend to act and react selfishly. But at that moment, we can desire to deny ourselves and act and react according to God's word by the enabling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says this is what it is to be a Christian. It is to desire that denying self and daily moment by moment, making those decisions. So it's really not difficult to understand. Difficult to apply, perhaps, but not difficult to understand. When you saw a man carrying his cross, you immediately understood that he was walking a path that was set for him by Rome. The Roman government got a hold of his life, told him to take up his cross, and then they led him according to a prescribed path to his death. In a similar way, when you see a Christian, you should immediately see a person who is walking on a path that has been set for them by Jesus. And some of you have experienced this in your life. You, you've been in a situation where people are watching you. And you have a chance to act or react either as you would normally or as a Christian ought to. And by the grace of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you act and you react by uh, the way Jesus wants you to. And people step back and they say, what is, what's going on with you? How can you do that? That person took advantage of you. That person did this to you or this situation would floor me. And they see, they, they wouldn't put it in these terms, but they see a person who is dead to themselves on their way to living life for another person, taking up their own cross. And that, that's really what Jesus is talking about. Why would you ever want to be on this kind of a crosswalk? Well, Jesus tells you in verse 24, he says, and here's the principle, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, to me, I have to be honest with you. I've told you before I'm not very smart, and I really mean that. This is like a mind-bending thing to me. It's, it's like, it reminds me of mathematics. And anything past well, even algebra I had trouble with, you know, and stuff. And so gain, lose, lose, gain. I, I don't quite get it. And so I thought about it just in a general sense. And, beyond, and behind this principle is an idea 
that I think is profound, but we don't always buy into it. And it is this. Your life is never really your own to live as you please. And you'd, you'd better figure that out. If you've never thought about that, figure it out right now. Whether you're uh, unsaved or saved, before you were a Christian or you become a Christian, you have never been free in the, tr- in the sense that you think, and you never really will be. Human beings must submit to a master. It's just a matter of who it's going to be. And so here's, here's what happened. You were born a sinner. You possess the sin nature. You committed actual sins. You don't, uh, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're already a sinner at birth. Though you may not have been as bad as the next person, you were in a very real way a slave to your sin. Paul the Apostle puts it best in Romans chapter 7. He says, there's things I want to do and I just can't do them. I don't do them. And there's other things I don't want to do. And I find myself doing it. And in a really honest moment, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And that is the human condition. You're, you're really not free. We struggle with this here in the United States because we have a wonderful, blessed country where we enjoy tremendous freedom. But when it comes to you as a human being and your soul, you are never truly free. You didn't know it before you were a Christian, but you were a citizen in the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by the devil. You know all this imagery and jokes about going to the pearly gates and seeing St. Peter there. He's on perennial gate duty, I guess, you know, and the guy's always there. And so it would be like going to the pearly gates and you'd have to show your passport. Oh, yeah, I have it somewhere, and I never really looked at it, and you'd have some devilish passport, you know, the kingdom of darkness passport. And then you'd open it, and, you know, have you ever seen in the jokes, you know, all the stuff falls out, you know, miles and miles long of all the terrible sins that you've committed and stuff. And Peter would just say, look, I don't have time to even read that. You're not, you're not a member of the kingdom of light. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You just didn't know it. If you try to save your life apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you can only become more lost. If you lose your life by submitting it to Jesus and letting him control it, then you're going to be set free from sin and death. Never and not free to do whatever you please, but you're free to follow the Lord and to do what pleases him. Jesus then made two practical applications of this incredible principle. One was personal, the other was prophetic. He applied it to you personally in verse 25 when he said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? I've always just thought of this as an exaggeration for the sake of making the point. We speak of folks who have it all, but we understand that no one really does have it all, right? I mean, you you might look at Bill Gates or Donald Trump or some other rich guy and say, Man, that guy's got it all. Well, no, he doesn't. Uh, I mean, all would be all. It would be everything in the whole world, you know, and all of its possessions. And so it's an exaggeration. But then I remembered something really interesting from the Gospels. Earlier, right after Jesus' baptism, he was driven out into the wilderness and Satan offered to literally give him what? The whole world. All the kingdoms of the world in their historic succession, it could all belong to Jesus Christ. 
if he would only worship the devil. And so Jesus, when he uses this illustration, it was very real to him. He wasn't exaggerating in his case. He was saying that it, it, it is possible, at least on some level, to have gained the whole world. Now, what does that mean to us? On a smaller level, people who are selfishly pursuing this world, its possessions or its power or its pleasures, well, they can't really gain the whole world, but you shouldn't even want any part of it because even if you gained it all the way it was offered to Jesus, you would lose everything because you would be both destroyed on the earth and then lost for all eternity. Imagine, and this is probably not right to even say, but imagine if Jesus had accepted the devil's offer. He would have been destroyed in the sense of the plan of salvation. You and I would have been lost for eternity. And that's what he's talking about. And so he's taking it, something that was real to him and he's saying, now apply it in your area where people are trying to become you know, famous or rich or whatever they are, where they're, they're looking to the material world. And he says, man, if you could have it all, you'd still be destroyed and lost. And so you shouldn't want to go that route. Don't serve the devil. Serve me. And then he applied the principle of verse 24 prophetically. In verse 26, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. You should not think of life on earth apart from looking forward to Jesus' second coming. Nothing is more certain than the physical bodily return of Jesus to this earth. He will come as the lightning flashes from east to west. When he comes, he's coming in power and glory with his holy angels. He's going to sit in judgment over the nations and their citizens, and he will determine the eternal destinies of mankind. Your crosswalk is made much lighter when you're looking up for the return of the Lord. And in our case, as the church, we won't be around for the second coming. We'll be coming back with the Lord at the second coming. The church has promised a rapture, which I'll talk about in just a second. But first, in light of his sure return, Jesus ended this talk by saying this in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. In the very next verses, this is fulfilled when Peter, John, and James are with Jesus and he is transfigured, the Bible says, so that they see him in glory as he will appear in his second coming. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But I want to point out here that this promise will also be fulfilled for some of us, I believe, at the rapture of the church. Jesus says there are some here who shall not taste death. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle says there are some who will never taste death. Some members of the church, some Christians who will be alive when Jesus Christ returns, not in his second coming, but in an event the Bible calls the rapture. He will return in the clouds and he will raise the dead in Christ. And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This uh, corruptible will put on incorruption, the Bible says. And we will not taste death. Whether it will be me personally, I don't know. I live believing that any moment the Lord could come. There will be a time when he does come and there will be those alive 
who will not taste death. And so what a glorious promise that the Lord is giving his followers. Now, there's something else I should talk about. We sometimes use the expression, it's my cross to bear. Have you ever used that expression? Don't admit it if you have, because I'm going to say something bad about it. (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about. See, I always warn you, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. So people say, you know, that's my cross to bear. And and they usually mean a particular affliction or adversity or some anguish. I've even heard people describe their spouse (laughs) as their cross to bear. You know, they're in a bad marriage. Well, it's it's my cross to bear. (laughs) Loser. (laughs) Of course, you're her cross. And so, you know, that kind of... It's not a good idea to think on small terms like that. If, let's say, an illness is seen as your cross to bear, then if you get cured or if you get healed, you think you're free from your cross. You might think you can go for days or weeks or months or longer without any crosses to bear. You think of times that are relatively quiet spiritually as you being free from bearing your cross. I know people, I've known people over the years who who are troubled because they don't have enough trouble in their life. No one here in Hanford, but I do know some. (laughs) I I have known people, really, who and they call me and they say, we don't have any trials. Are we even Christians? I said, just wait. They're coming. Because Jesus promised you tribulation in this world and, and it will come. But, but there are people who think in that way that, well, I, I'm, I'm trouble free right now. And so I have no cross to bear. That is not true. Jesus said you decide daily to take up your cross. Your cross is to deny your own dreams and desires and drives and instead obey God's enabling word. Affliction and adversity and anguish and things like that might be a part of your life or they might not. But they are not your cross. Your cross is your decision that your life doesn't belong to you, but that it is given to Jesus Christ to do with as he sees fit. One more thought. I said earlier that Jesus volunteered to take up his cross and that he did so for the joy that was set before him. He knew that there was a particular cross walk that he would take at the end of which was glory. And if you go through as far as we can go from Genesis to Revelation, we can identify a very specific, very unique and particular walk that Jesus took before his incarnation, at his incarnation and afterwards that was him taking up his cross for our sake, submitting his life to the Father. Why should you volunteer to take up your cross? Because it is yours. Jesus said, quote, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross. And so he starts with the general. If anybody, anybody at all wants to do this, let that particular person take up his or her very unique cross. You don't know all the steps, but Jesus has a uniquely prepared cross walk for you. He will lead you into and through all the things that will bring you ultimately in the end to be changed into his image he will complete the good work that he has begun in you if you keep that in mind you will voluntarily take up your custom cross for the joy that jesus has set before you let's pray together
Lord, I pray that we would meditate on these things, think more about what the cross means, not just death on the cross, but life under the cross, taking up my particular custom, individual cross, the one that you have planned for me and discovering the good works that you have before ordained that I should walk in them in voluntary but total submission to you. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that we would desire, Lord, to follow you, recognize self and sin as the enemy and deny that, and moment by moment, listen to the still small voice of your spirit as he inspires and anoints your word that we have hidden in our heart that we might walk in a way that's pleasing to you there's a lot here lord but it's really very simple in in its core and i pray that we would treat it simply and just bring it to you and ask you lord to enrich it to our hearts jesus you're not asking us to do anything that you haven't already done and done to a much greater extent and done for a much longer period of time we see you lord taking up your cross, going to the cross, and then bearing the crown. Lord, I pray that we would see our lives as a cross now for the glory of the crown later. Do these things, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Uh, One word about the baptism. If you're here and you're going to be baptized, as soon as we're done, uh, the ladies are going to get changed in the room back here behind the sanctuary we call the green room. Go down the hallway, which is the door right next to the cafe. Take a turn to your right. You'll see the green room and uh, because it says the green room on it. And go in there, and uh, we've got some changing stalls in there uh, for your privacy. Also, there's a women's restroom in there that you can use uh, on the way. Uh, Change and then kind of uh, gather in the hallway. Guys, we're going to change either in the men's room back here or in my office. And uh, so same thing. And then as soon as we're ready, we're going to come out and do the baptism. Uh, So if you want to stay for it, just kind of be patient, hang around. Uh, And and, uh, what a glorious time just, you know, just to follow Jesus Christ in baptism. Uh, Not an easy thing, but, but, uh, you know, in any way to, to say that you want to identify with Jesus who died and was buried and rose from the dead and, and that you want to die to yourself as we talked about this morning and be buried under the waters of baptism rising in newness of life with the power of the Holy Spirit some of the folks are new Christians some have been Christians their entire life so don't read anything into uh, the timing of their baptism it's just one of those things but uh, glorious time the rest of you as, as we close this morning some of our guys will be down here to pray with you spoke about prayer a little bit and uh, so if there's something on your heart that you want prayer for or someone else that you want to pray about, come down and pray with our elders and deacons and lift up your heart before the Lord. God bless you. May God keep you as you take up your particular individual custom cross every day, moment by moment, and walk with Jesus Christ, living a life that's pleasing to Him. Amen. Holy and righteous is God There is nothing compares to His work For at just the right time He sent down His own Son As a man to the man of the earth So may 
Amen. 